Pray with me, Father, that is our prayer, that you would glorify your name through us. We know that you enable us by way of means, that is, you use things to help us. And the key in helping us by your spirit is your word. So I pray that now you would enable us to see, that you enable us to hear, that you would enable us to embrace that which is true. And Father, may it be life to us in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn please to Acts and chapter 21. Acts chapter 21, please. I want to read beginning with verse 37 and carry us through chapter 22, verse 22. So it's a lengthy reading. I would love to read to you uh, chapters 22 through 28, but I don't think we have the time. But um, but uh, over these next couple of weeks at least, our messages will be uh, grabbing a big, big bits of scripture at least to try to help us see what God is doing. So please, Acts in chapter 21, verse 37, hear the word of God. And as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out of the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people. And there, and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Now just to catch us up so you get it, you remember the context. Paul has been anxious to get to Jerusalem. He's made it to Jerusalem. And, and while there, he um, uh, was... Uh, accosted really by a group of Asian Jewish people who um, um, didn't like what he had, what they thought he had been saying, what they accused him of. And so they began to beat him. He was, uh, uh, the Roman authorities intervened and took him. And now uh, the tribune is trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, you notice that he had mistaken Paul for someone else by God's providence. Uh, he uh, picked him up anyway. And uh, now he's going to address Paul is um, these Jewish people, and he's going to address them in Hebrew. Um, chapter 22, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness, bear me witness. From, then I, from them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone round about me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but didn't understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go to Damascus, and there you'll be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. 
At one end, Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sights. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem, was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. So that was their response to Paul's testimony at that point. Now, uh, as we enter into these last uh, chapters of, of, of Acts, we're about three-quarters of the way through uh, the book of Acts. There's 28 chapters. We're in chapter 21 and 22, so we're about three-quarters of the way through. Uh, it began, of course, you remember, in Acts chapter 1, which you might suspect. Um, but it began there uh, with the ascended, or, I'm sorry, with the resurrected Jesus giving a command to his disciples to raid in Jerusalem. And there they would receive an identity that is his witness. They would be his witnesses. They'd be known as his witnesses. And they were given a mission in the scope of that mission, that they would be his witnesses, that is to testify of him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Uh, and the question then for us, is this going to happen? And as we've been walking our way, moving our way through the book of Acts, we've seen that it indeed is happening. That uh, on the day of Pentecost, that Jewish feast, we saw sort of uh, all of this come together um, in, 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 in a magnificent form. Because on the day of Pentecost, because of, of that particular celebration, the Jewish men from all over the known world, if you will, from every nation, as Luke puts it, every nation under heaven because the Jews had been so dispersed that when they gathered back there were, there were Jewish people who came from every nation back and there they were on the day of Pentecost. And on that day they heard the glory of God. They heard the wondrous deeds of God even in their own language. And then Peter begins to preach and as Peter preaches and lays out the truth about Jesus what we find are 3,000 come to faith on that day and there it begins and there's a continuing refrain, it seems, sometimes expressed, sometimes implied. And that a refrain goes something like this. And the Lord added to their number, sometimes it says daily, the Lord added to their number those who are being saved. And, and we see it as we walk through that really this gospel is going out, that Jesus though ascended now, is ruling and reigning, and he's ruling and reigning over his word so that the gospel goes forth, so that his church is built, so that the kingdom of God is manifested on the earth. We see it in Acts chapter 2. It progresses. You remember Peter and John, they healed this lame man. After that, they're arrested. But yet, that doesn't slow down the move of the gospel. It continues to move out, and many believe. There is this this, uh, time of, of, of crisis in the church, where Ananias and Sapphira, this couple, lie to the church, to Peter, to the Holy Spirit, and they're killed, really, disciplined in that way. They're killed. They die. Uh, And yet that doesn't stop 
the spread of the gospel, we still read that refrain that many were added to their number. There's a, another crisis where some of the widows in the church feel as if they're being neglected, and that problem is solved, and, and continuing this gospel goes on, and we read that more and more were added to their number. Stephen gets killed, this, this first martyr, as we might think of him. He's killed, but, but that doesn't slow down the gospel. In fact, there are many scattered out of Jerusalem, and they go to places they never thought to go. They go to Samaria, and we see the word of God coming there through Philip, and, and Peter and John even come so that they can witness firsthand the coming of the Holy Spirit on these Samaritans, those ones that were otherwise hated by Jews, And then Philip goes and he finds himself uh, uh, amongst this, in, in, in relation with this Ethiopian man who's reading from the prophet Isaiah. And, and he teaches him even more and this man is baptized. He comes to faith. Then Philip goes on. We see the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, this one who had come against the church. We, we read his testimony even as he, as he makes his defense on what actually happened to him, that here was this one who was a persecutor of the church. Here was this one who hated believers, who hated followers of Christ. He killed them, he says even. He was the one that was there with Stephen. He was the one who gave the okay. And yet even God came to him, even him in his resistance and his violence and his hatred and all of that couldn't keep the Spirit of God from changing his heart and enabling him to come to faith. And so not only were many being added, but all kinds of people from all kinds of places. And then it went on from there, of course. Uh, Peter receives this vision and says, the Gentiles, these hated Gentiles, these other people, these people outside the covenant, they can come to to faith as well. And and Peter preaches to the household of Cornelius. And as he's preaching, the Holy Spirit falls upon them and, and they believe. Uh, and and then, then, then through Peter's ministry, we read that more are being saved. And then Paul and Barnabas are called out by God through the church to go out. And they, they go out and they plant churches in various places. And, and by way of their ministry and their testimony, more and more come to faith. They come back to Jerusalem and, and they report about what's going on among the Gentiles and and. and, and and the Jewish Christians there say, that's wonderful. How can we be united in faith? We can't make the Gentiles uh, uh, become Jews in order to, to, to enter into the covenant. And so, so, so they don't need to. And so here's the instructions for them. But, but yet even our Jewish brothers won't give up their culture necessarily. But we'll be one church and one together because we find our peace through Jesus and through the work of the cross. Our peace with God is found. And so there's unity in the midst of the church. And then Paul and Silas go out. And again, the word of God is ministered and and, and more and more come to faith. And increasingly we see the church being built and the church expanding. Uh, Paul goes out again a third time. And we see again more and more people come to faith. And now he's back in Jerusalem. And he comes back to Jerusalem because he loves his countrymen. Romans chapter 9, Paul says, I would be willing to be accursed if only my fellow Jews would come to faith in Jesus. So he comes to them, and perhaps this last time in his own mind, to come to them. And he knows, because he's been told by the Holy Spirit, through prophets, that when he goes to Jerusalem, it's going to be very difficult for him. But he's willing to go. He's willing to give up his life, because his life is all about making Christ known. And so he comes there because he loves them, no doubt. He comes there with an offering from the Gentiles to say, look, we're one church. And I've been collecting this offering. I've been collecting this money as I've been going around the Gentiles, the Gentile believers. And they're sending it to you to help you. 
because they know you've been struggling. Uh, some of them have been persecuted, others because of the economic problems in Jerusalem. He says, this is, a, this is a love offering literally to you to show that we're one. And James, the, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, says, Paul, I, I know that you want us to be unified, but some think that you've been preaching against our Jewish culture and our Jewish heritage. And we understand that, 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 that Gentiles don't need to become Jews in order to, to come to faith, but they've been thinking you've been preaching about our culture and about our her- against our culture and heritage. So we want you to take this Nazarite vow. Would you do that? And Paul had done that before. It wasn't an essential of faith. It was something, it was a way, must have been ingrained in him that he could consecrate himself before the Lord. For others, it may have been fasting. For others, it may have been taking a retreat. For others, who knows how, how one consecrates one before the Lord. But he used this Old Testament Nazarite vow. And he had done it before, and he did it again. But there were those who, who didn't accept that. They weren't believers in Jesus. And so they came against Paul, and they came to kill him. And now Paul makes his defense, as we've read here. Um, and still, once they hear that this gospel, once they hear that the covenant of God, once they hear that the blessing of God is being extended outside of Israel to Gentiles, they get violent and they say, Paul shouldn't live. Now this is an interesting piece as we come to this part of the book of Acts because we've been, we've been gearing up and we've been kind of revving through this great work of evangelism and this great work of mission. And we've become accustomed at every place that Paul or anyone else goes that we read about people coming to faith and the church being built. But now that Paul's in Jerusalem, it seems that that Luke has a different bent. He's going to get Paul to Rome, which will be very important. And we're going to mark that out in the next few weeks about how he gets there because it's amazing, uh, this providence of God. It'll be very encouraging to us to see how, how this all takes place. But what we don't see in these chapters particularly are conversions. Paul has opportunity to testify various times in front of various people. And every time it seems that he does, it it, it sometimes gets him into more trouble, but it never gets him out of trouble. But nobody seems to come to faith. Here he is in this instance. He's he's sharing uh, his testimony, a powerful testimony. They knew him. He says, you can attest to this. They can attest to what I was once like. Uh, they, they know people I had killed. They know people I had put in prison for this very thing to which I'm testifying today. And let me tell you what happened. What happened is that I was arrested, that, that the Spirit of God, Jesus himself, came to me, spoke to me, changed my heart, and I believed. And now this is my life. Christ is my life, and now I'm going to take this everywhere both to Jew and to Gentile as well. But, 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 but it didn't melt their hearts, this testimony. They said, he shouldn't live. Let's kill him. If we had opportunity, and we don't, but if we had opportunity to, to read through uh, the end of this book of Acts, we find that Paul has a, another occasion then to, to address uh, the Sanhedrin, the council. Um, and in that instance, there are Pharisees and Sadducees there, that is, the, the ruling bodies of the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees believed in an ultimate resurrection, not necessarily the resurrection of Jesus, but they believed in, in an ultimate resurrection of human beings. The Sadducees didn't. They thought this was it. And so Paul said, I've come here because of the resurrection of the dead. They started fighting with each other. 
And at the end of the day, the Pharisees said, ah, we can't really find anything to hold him. But the Sadducees said, no, essentially, uh, he's got to die. And so there was dissension and ultimately violence, so much so that, again, the Romans had to intervene. So a plot comes against Paul, and amazingly, it's found out. Paul's nephew hears about it somehow. We don't really know about Paul's sister, let alone his nephew. But Paul's nephew finds out about it and, and, and tells the Roman authorities. And so they move Paul from where he is to Caesarea. They move him, 470 soldiers look after Paul, this little guy. I don't know if you can picture it, but you know the, the, the image we have of Paul in the scripture isn't that he's a strapping six foot four six-foot, uh, four-inch, 280-pound uh, linebacker, uh, they tell us he's this little guy that isn't impressive. In fact, if anything else, he's a little bit unsightly. So there he is, this little guy, with all these bodyguards around him to keep him safe, and he's moving along. And when he gets there, the governor, uh, Felix, uh, hears him. But, but Felix, even though Felix hears him often, doesn't believe. Paul speaks to Felix about righteousness and about self-control and about the coming judgment. But, 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 but Felix doesn't believe. He keeps him in prison another couple of years with the hope that maybe Paul will give him some money to get out. Well, then finally he's deposed and, and another governor, Festus, comes and Festus hears him as well. And he wants to send him back to Jerusalem. Why should I be hearing him? And, and Paul says, no, I, I'm a Roman citizen. Send me to Rome. And, and he goes, ooh, that complicates it a great deal. So he pulls in King Agrippa, and King Agrippa comes with his wife, and, and they listen to Paul, and, and Agrippa says to Paul, Paul, you're crazy. You're mad, and you're foolish. Because if you hadn't appealed to go to Rome, I'd set you free, but I can't now, because now you have to go to Rome, which is where Paul wanted to go. He would get an escort. It'd be difficult. We'll get there later. But the point is, we've become accustomed, as we've been reading through the book of Acts, to hear the testimony of Paul, to hear the testimony of Jesus being shared, and people come to faith, and nobody's coming to faith. The question this morning is this. What sustained him? What sustained him? What enabled him to persevere in continuing to go over this and over this and over this? He went over the same material every time. Just about as he talked, whether it was to the Jewish people who had first come to him, whether it was the council, whether it was uh, uh, Felix, whether it was Festus, whether it was Agrippa, same material. In fact, essentially, this is the same material Paul's been using ever since he was first converted. He hasn't changed his, his bit at all. It's the same gospel. It's the same testimony. It's, it's the same Jesus that he talked about everywhere. Before, it seemed to have great effect. People were coming to faith. Not always. I mean, he faced opposition. The church has always faced opposition all the way back to Acts chapter 3 when Peter and John heals this lame man. Uh, they get arrested. Uh, there are difficulties along. We see Stephen being killed, obviously, and the persecution coming after the, pers- after the death of Stephen. We see difficulties even as Paul goes from place to place. There are times when he has to escape and so forth and so on. But even in the midst of those times, it seemed that people were being converted. But now it doesn't seem that. He's just staying in prison, moving from one to another, all measure of protection and, and some help along the way. But, but what sustained him? What enabled him to continue to share the gospel in the midst of this kind of a situation? Two things. One we'll get to today, one next week. Two things. And, and again, I, I ask this question not because of some historical curiosity, not just so that we can understand what made Paul tick or 
that we can perhaps understand how the church grew and whatever. But this is apropos for us. How do we sustain a witness and a testimony in a relatively hostile land, in a relatively hostile place, in a place where we don't see hundreds coming to faith every week and we share the gospel with friends and and some come, yes, but others reject, others don't. Uh, So how do we sustain that? Uh, I believe we find a piece of the answer to that and I would even say the primary answer to that this week will be primary, next week will be a bit more secondary. But in Acts chapter 21, I think we get the first glimpse of this or the glimpse of the, of the primary sustaining factor in Paul's life. Uh, Acts 21, uh, the whole context begins in verse 10. We've read this before. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered. So this is the guts of it. This is the the motivating thing in Paul. This is what, frankly, I want in my own life. I want for you. I want for us. Because I think if we get this, I won't necessarily get it today. It's an ongoing thing. But if we understand this and we strive towards this, then this, I think, will sustain us. In fact, I think this is the only thing that will sustain us. Notice what Paul says, verse 13. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem. And here's the key. For the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul's passion, the thing that drove him, was that Jesus would be glorified, that Jesus would be known. I mean, you could say, well, didn't Paul do this out of love for the lost? Yes, in some measure. We'll talk about that next week. Didn't he do it because of love for his countrymen? Certainly, there was a measure of that. But it was secondary. It was primary in Paul's guts, in Paul's desires, his passions, who he was, was this, was this passion for the glory of the name of Jesus, meaning Jesus himself. When we talk about the name of Jesus, we're talking about Jesus, his very character, who he is, what he did. And Paul's drive was that Jesus was so glorious that that he needed to be shown, that you couldn't keep him under a basket. You had to show him. You had to to, to put him out there. And and, and, and again, that was was consistent with Paul's very life. For instance, in, in Philippians and In chapter 1, Paul speaks of his life like this. Verse 20. He says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, he said, What moves me, what motivates me, what energizes me, what quickens me is Christ being known. I want to walk around and I want to talk and I want, when I leave, for people to remember Christ, for he to be glorified. In fact, he puts it like this in 1 Corinthians in 
chapter 10, after a long discourse about how we ought to live and so forth. In verse 31, he says, So whether you eat or drink, that was the immediate presenting issue, eating and drinking stuff. He says, whether you eat or drink, and then he gets to the general point, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He says, God is glorious. He's the one to be revealed. He's the one to be reflected. In fact, the, the whole essence of sin is not living like that. In Romans and chapter 1 and verse 21, Paul, as he lays out the gospel to the church in Rome, says, For although they knew God, that is, those who are under the wrath of God, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. See, they didn't glorify him. They didn't reflect him. They didn't, their lives and their lips didn't say, God is glorious. And Paul, that's what sustained him. So when he was even in dangerous situations, he spoke of Christ Why? Because he didn't want to miss the opportunity. Because this was an opportunity to glorify Christ. And if he couldn't speak, he wanted to act in such a way with patience and kindness and mercy and justice and compassion so that the very character of Christ would be reflected in him. Because that's all he cared about. He didn't care about being known. The way that he laid out his own own ambition in life, Acts chapter 20, verse 24, he says, But I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He says, this is what is, is glorious. This is what's significant. This is what my life is really, really, really all about. In fact, that's what motivated Jesus. The very glory of God, for instance. In John, in chapter 4, Jesus speaks of his own life and his own mission like this. He says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. See, Jesus came, you could say Jesus came because he loved us most certainly. Jesus was sent because God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, loves us. Jesus, God, so he came because he loved, for God so loved the world. But yet he loved and desired for his father to be glorified. In chapter 5 of John's Gospel, verse 30, uh, Jesus puts it like this. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then in chapter 6, and verse 38, Jesus puts it like this. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I'll never cast out. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of that, of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. He says, listen, I've come. Jesus is my motivating factor, my my priority in life, my guts, is to glorify my Father in heaven. Chapter 7 and verse 18 of John's Gospel, Jesus puts it like this. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true and in whom there is no falsehood. He says, listen, I haven't come to seek my own glory. I've come to seek the glory of my my father. In chapter 8 and verse 48, Jesus puts it like this. The Jews answered him, are you not right? Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered them, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, 
and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he's the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, uh, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never see death. He says, listen, I've come to glorify my Father in heaven. In chapter 12, as he, as he nears his own crucifixion, in verse 27, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus wants God to be seen. That's his whole activity, his whole life, is that God would be seen. In chapter 13 and verse 31, Jesus puts it like this. Jesus said, now now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Surely Jesus would be glorified because he's God in the flesh. But he came that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would be seen, would be shown, would be glorified. In chapter 17, as Jesus prays to his Father, we read these words. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all all to whom you have given him. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus said, I came, I glorified you. And the way Paul translates that is like this in Romans and chapter 15, verse 7. We touched on this last Sunday. Paul writes, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. In other words, live to glorify him. And the way that you glorify him, the way that you reflect him is by being as welcoming of each other as he is of you. As as he's welcomed you into his family, welcome other family members in the same gracious, kind, compassionate, merciful way. That's how you glorify him. That's how you reflect him. Remember last week, that's how you stand with one voice by welcoming all of these brothers and sisters who are different than you in various kinds of ways, culturally and personality and other ways. Welcome them in as you've been welcomed in. That's how you glorify God. That's how you reflect him. That's, how people, that's, that's when people say, God is in this place. Look at them. And now he goes on like this, verse 8. He says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that is to Jewish people, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. In other words, why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come as a servant? He came, first of all, he says, to show the integrity of his father, to vindicate his father's word. Why? Because his father had said, Genesis chapter 3, that one will come from the seed of the woman and crush the head of the serpent. He said to Abraham, out of your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So the son, you can picture this intra-Trinitarian discussion. The son says, I've got to go. The father might say, well, why? And he says, well, father, you promised. We can't let your promise go unfulfilled. I want to show that your truth. 
So I'm going to go. And the father might say, well, it's going to cost you. Because you see, the promise that I made was that you would come and crush the head of the serpent. And the way you're going to crush the head of the serpent is by having your heel bruised. So you're going to die. So I don't care. I'll come. I'll be a servant. I'll humble myself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because, because your word should be glorified. You should be vindicated. And so he came to do that to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. He says, and I want to bring mercy because God, you're merciful. I want to bring merciful mercy to even the Gentiles. And so they'll turn around and they'll give you thanks. They'll glorify you. They'll reflect you. They'll honor you and give you the honor that you're due. Jesus came that his father might be glorified. God exists, we know. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for his own glory as well he should. Why should God reflect anyone other than himself? Should the love of God reflect our love or his love? Should the wisdom that God chose reflect, glorify our wisdom or his wisdom? Should the mercy of God reflect our mercy that we show or his mercy no 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 he lives as he should to glorify to reflect to honor who he is because he's the glorious one and so he should live that way so so paul's simply paul's not giving us a new thing when he says his motivation is the name of jesus to glorify jesus it's the thing it's how we're to live and paul knew How glorious the mercy and the grace and the wisdom and the kindness and the righteousness and the justice of God was. And that's what he kept telling over and over and over again. He says, I know it. Don't you know my life? Don't you know how evil I was? And don't you know that the only reason that I'm able to stand before you and testify of Jesus is because of what he did. He even makes the point, nobody else on the road that day got it. Is that amazing or what? I mean, it's it's as if God said, it's as if Jesus said, I want him. So I'm going after him. And so he called Paul Saul of Tarsus, but he called him in a way that only Saul on that day heard. No one else did. Wouldn't you love to hear the testimony of the other people? Oh, we're going to Damascus with Paul and or Saul of Tarsus, and we had our orders, and we're all pumped up about it, you know, manly men going to kill people. And, and then, boom, all of a sudden, our leader's blind. And they take him away. We haven't seen him since. I don't know what went on. Paul knew the wisdom of God. Paul knew that only God knew how to reach Paul. Paul knew the wisdom of God. Only God could solve the problem that was true for Paul. The problem that was true for Paul is that he was a sinner worthy of condemnation before God. And that God who was holy and just couldn't simply acquit him because justice had to be done. Well, how could justice be done and Paul or any of us be saved? 
And only the wisdom of God could figure out that problem. And only the love of God, because of the wisdom of God, could figure out that problem. And so he says, I'll send my own, I'll send my son. And he'll take my justice, he'll take my wrath upon himself, so that those who are in him, those who are connected to him, those who trust in him can be acquitted then. And justice will be done, and love will be served, and and Paul would marvel at that wisdom, that God could solve that. And he would marvel at the justice of God because it was meted out entirely. Eternal wrath, eternal justice meted out upon Jesus. And he would marvel at the love of God and he would think, this is so glorious. God is so great. How can I not speak of him? Even if there'll be no success, even if it gets me thrown into prison. We glorify all the time sports heroes and political heroes technology we can't stop talking about the latest thing in our pockets you know and what it does and who it contacts and how quickly it does it how small it is and all those things we we just glorify that we're just amazed by it we've got to tell people look at this paul would say god is glorious Seek his glory. So now we picture this. Woman gets a call from her daughter. Her daughter says, Mom, going into labor. Mom makes a, 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 a reservation on an airplane to get there as quickly as possible. When she gets there, she meets her grandson. What does she do? Well, she's packed something called a camera. And she spends the two weeks that she's there doing all the sort of motherly things, cleaning up and da 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 And she takes... 14,000 pictures. And though she could keep them now in her digital camera, she doesn't. She goes out and makes pictures. Why? Because she knows she has a ride home on the airplane. And what she wants to do then is share those pictures with everybody around. Why? Not because she necessarily loves them. She doesn't really care that much what they think of her. But what she wants is to show them a picture of glory. Right? And they're in glorifying this child. And she doesn't care. People could, as long as people say, that's a glorious child, ma'am, they could also say, but you're nuts. And she wouldn't care. Because she's, it's not about her. It's about this child. God is no child. But he's glorious. What we need, you and me, what we need is to be aware of that. It's amazing how that can be hidden from us, how accustomed to it we can become, how easy it is just to wake up and go through the day without really realizing. And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me, who caused his pain for me to him to death pursued. Let's pray, Father. Pray for me, for us. That we never, ever take it for granted that we never miss that you would show us your glory 
of the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that would drive us. Not into guilt that, oh my goodness, if we don't share this, we're just horrible people. Father, into passionate people that are discerning people that shared at the right time and in the right place and all of that, but not to shy away because of the worries of the world or the deceitfulness of riches or the possible embarrassment or rejection or persecution. Father, may we be a people who know your glory and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Please stand for the benediction. Uh, The response uh, to the benediction is, I believe in Jesus, amen. I could have given you bunches of any numbers of things to say there. But if you're able to say, I believe in Jesus, amen, I hope it sticks with you. That you understand how you got to believe in Jesus. And how glorious the wisdom and the love and the mercy and the grace of God really is. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory, dominion, majesty and power both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, I believe in Jesus. Amen.